Record-breaking wildfires in Canada continue to send plumes of smoke to the eastern U.S. coast, including Massachusetts. The result is polluted and unhealthful air quality and ground delays for flights in New York and Philadelphia. Today is Wednesday, June 7th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, a North Korean defector speaks. Kim Hyun-woo held a senior post in North Korea's state security ministry until 2014. Stay tuned for his first interview. And the destruction of a dam in southern Ukraine has led to widespread flooding downriver. People are just sitting right on the roofs of their houses, uh, crying for help. This is a real tragedy. Also, the ousting of the head of CNN after tumultuous year. It's 401 News Headlines and Wall Street numbers are coming up. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. More than a dozen U.S. states in the Northeast, the Midwest, and even the Southern U.S. are covered in a haze of smoke from the wildfires raging in Canada. As NPR's Joe Hernandez tells us, air quality advisories are in effect for millions of people who are being warned to limit their time outdoors whenever possible for their health. From Minnesota to Massachusetts and down to North Carolina, wildfire smoke is affecting scores of people this side of the border. The National Weather Service says air quality in the northeastern U.S. has plummeted. Canada is having a particularly brutal wildfire season, and authorities warn that it may get even worse over the summer. The smoke blanketing the U.S. now is largely coming from more than 150 wildfires burning in Quebec alone, many of which are classified as out of control. Officials say people in areas with poor air quality should remain indoors if they can, wear an N95 mask outside, and limit any strenuous activity. Joe Hernandez, NPR News. More than two years after becoming a target of then-President Donald Trump's vitriol and that of extremists who stormed the Capitol on January 6th, Former Vice President Mike Pence is competing against his former boss and a growing list of others for the 2024 GOP presidential nomination. At a rally in Iowa today, Pence directly addressed the unsubstantiated claims of election fraud and the attacks against him. Despite the fact that the Constitution's language is clear and provides the vice president with no authority to reject or return electoral votes, my former running mate continues to insist that I had the right to overturn the election. But President Trump was wrong then, and he's wrong now. Trump remains the apparent frontrunner for the GOP nomination, despite a number of investigations and a historic criminal indictment related to hush money payments. Another of Trump's former aides has testified to a grand jury in Miami. NPR's Frank Ordonez reports on signs that the probe into Trump's handling of classified documents could be nearing a conclusion. Taylor Budowich is a former aide to Trump who now leads the super PAC MAGA. He said via Twitter that he was fulfilling his legal obligation and answered every question honestly. But he called the case a, quote, bogus and deeply troubling effort to use the power of the government to get Trump. Special counsel Jack Smith is investigating whether Trump broke the law by mishandling classified documents after leaving office and whether he obstructed the government's investigation into the matter. Budowich is among a number of former aides and other high-profile witnesses who have been called to testify over the past few weeks. Trump has denied allegations that he mishandled classified material. Franco Ordonez, NPR News. The Dow's closed up nearly 100 points to end the day at 33,672. 
It's NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Massachusetts Department of Environmental Protection is advising people to take precautions when outdoors today. The air quality continues to be poor because of the smoke billowing down from Canadian wildfires. Young children, older adults, and people with heart and lung concerns are urged to limit outdoor activity. The state says wearing a mask such as an N95 could offer some protection. A Boston police report on the car crash involving Boston Mayor Michelle Wu yesterday indicates the mayor had complained of pain on her right side but declined medical attention. The mayor was the passenger in a vehicle, a police vehicle, when it collided with another vehicle in a Roslindale intersection yesterday. A woman in the other vehicle and her child were taken by ambulance for observation. Members of the Massachusetts congressional delegation are urging the Labor Department to help resolve the state's $2.5 billion unemployment insurance mistake. The delegation sent a letter to the U.S. Department of Labor. It called for an unprecedented challenge to the state for the state to resolve the situation. State legislative leaders say it's too early to speculate on how much the state owes or where the state will get the money. In the forecast, showers off and on today and for the early part of tonight should be a cloudy night ahead down around 53 degrees. Then tomorrow, gray skies again, a good chance of showers, temperatures in the low 50s. Not much change for Friday, mostly cloudy, the chance of some thunderstorms. 64 degrees now in Boston at 406. WBUR supporters include CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Local journalism is the backbone of vibrant, engaged local communities. When local journalism disappears, civic engagement goes with it. WBUR's journalism is strong, but we don't take it for granted, and we hope you won't either. Our future is not guaranteed. We need your monthly contribution to keep our journalism and our local communities strong. Give today at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And we hope we don't have to do too much convincing to get you to give today. But if we have to, here are two good reasons. This fund drive is more than half over. In fact, we just have two more hours of fundraising tonight before uh, we have the final day tomorrow. And in the next two hours, we have a special offer on the table. I'm Lisa Mullins here with Magna Chakrabarty to tell you about it. It's good to see you, Lisa, by the way. So this special offer is a match that's being put forth by a generous group of listeners. It is a two-for-one match, if I have that correctly. Someone fact-check me, because we've got to get our facts right here. Yes, it is a two-for-one match, and it's available until 6 p.m., so you just got a couple of hours to make the most of it. And in so doing, you essentially make your money go uh, in total three times farther with that two-for-one match. So now's the perfect time to really sort of superpower your support and contribution to WBUR. Call 1-800-909-9287. This is Laura Dern. If there is a world on the other side of a wall somewhere where artists run free and journalists share a point of view to educate us into alternative opinion and voice, and it's used beautifully, and there's opera and Sesame Street and National Public Radio, I want to be on that side of the wall. So thank you, National Public Radio. I pray that you're supported forever. We need you. It's how I get my news. It's how I get to know about human behavior. It's how I, thanks to people like Terry Gross, learn about film and invention, and I care deeply about it. 
And I never, ever want anyone to feel anxiety about losing voice in our uh, beautiful democracy. And we certainly are hoping that you take that message to heart because we don't want to have anxiety over uh, our losing voice, in fact, because when you pledge to WBUR, you are making us stronger. So if right now you can make a pledge of whatever amount on a monthly basis, say $5 a month, $50 a month, if you can do that, some people can do $100 a month, you will have that tripled by our generous listeners from the Morris Society. They're putting up some of their money in hopes that you will put up yours. And we really hope that, especially right now, because your match will be tripled only until 6 o'clock tonight. But please don't wait even that long. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Let's give some examples, right? Because you're right about it being tripled. So if you give $50 as a monthly contribution now due to that two-for-one match, it becomes... Thanks to those generous listeners, a total of $150 every month for WBUR. If you're able to give $100 a month uh, right now as a monthly contribution, it becomes a total of $300 a month. And we can make that money work extremely well for you because it immediately becomes the kind of news, information, and stories that you rely on. It's the consistency of the funding from monthly contributors like you that allow us to consistently deliver back the news you need. So 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call. And, uh, you know, one of the the great things about being behind the scenes here is that we have a look at some of the stories that NPR is going to be putting out for uh, All Things Considered. And the one coming up is fascinating. Uh, This is the first interview that's been done publicly in the United States with someone who used to serve uh, in the government of Pyongyang in North Korea. This is a defector. We know what happens with defectors and with defectors' families who are still in the region. And um, this is serious business. I'm so looking forward to hearing this, and I think this is the kind of thing that you never know what's coming down the pike on WBUR, but you know it's going to be interesting, and you know that it's worth paying for. So whether it happens to be a story about foreign policy, uh, whether it's a story about the arts, about science, about the environment, it's worth your money. If it's worth your money to listen, it's certainly worth your money to pay for. So triple your match right now. Put up, say, $10 a month or $15 a month. It will be tripled right now. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Again, it's a two-for-one match based uh, on the kindness of our Murrow Society uh, group of listeners, but it's only available until 6 p.m. tonight. So call now, one 800 909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. I'm Mary Louise Kelly, and I'm about to introduce you to a man who had never set foot on American soil before yesterday, never given an interview either. When Kim Hyunwoo stepped into our studios here in Washington to speak with me through an interpreter for more than an hour, he was doing something that, in his past life, would have gotten him killed. <laughs> For 17 years in North Korea, I worked for North Korean Intelligence Agency. You were a spy. 
My role was more about protecting the regime's security internally. Mr. Kim worked for North Korea's Ministry of State Security. Main task was not to send out agents abroad, but rather to track down, identify, and catch what the regime views as hostile agents or hostile activities within the state. As you may have gathered from the fact that he's speaking now, Kim Hyun-woo defected in 2014. Today he lives in Seoul, South Korea. He got his kids out, his immediate family. But Kim's decision put his wider family, still in North Korea, in danger. Sadly, I do not know what happened to my relatives. And that's why when I'm in South Korea every day, morning, daytime, and evening, I pray earnestly that... God will keep them safe in North Korea, all my cousins and relatives. Mr. Kim works now for the Institute for National Security Strategy. That's a state-funded think tank in Seoul. He is still tracking North Korea closely. So I'm curious, I'm curious about so many things about life in North Korea. What do we know of the pandemic, of COVID, of how badly North Korea has been Hit. I predict that North Korea suffered from pandemic even more severe than other countries, fundamentally because North Korea's healthcare infrastructure is severely deficient. So there would have been inadequate proper responses in mitigating and containing the spread and the illness from the pandemic. Do we know for sure that there was spread? Because Pyongyang was saying, there are no cases, no problem, because we closed the borders. I question the credibility of North Korea's official state message that due to locking down the country, there was no spread of pandemic. It's because 13 years ago, in 2010, there was actually another case of spread of epidemic. In 2010 case and today's case, what we know is that because North Korean regime lacks proper resources to deal with pandemic, only realistic option, a measure they could take is literally lock down the entire country. North Korea's lockdown measures, however, from the past case, from 2010, we can extrapolate that it likely was insufficient in actually preventing the spread of epidemic. And yet the regime, obviously, to be transparent in full data of the impact of pandemic could have caused political and social instability within the country. That is why I believe with confidence that North Korea regime has been intentional in in minimizing broadcast information and coverage about the actual state of damage from the recent pandemic. Can you tell how tightly sealed the borders are now? First two years of COVID pandemic, the, the borders were heavily locked down and controlled. Starting in 2022, what we are seeing is that while human travels, so human interactions are still strictly monitored and curtailed, there has been 
signs of revival of cargoes passing between China and North Korea border. So in that sense, at least in terms of shipments of goods, yes, it seems for the past year there's been relaxation of the border control. What kind of goods are coming in? To give an example, so last summer, June and July specifically, construction materials have been shipped from China into North Korea. We speculate that North Korean higher-ups or elites, they also need luxury goods, and we predict that these goods have also found their ways to be imported from overseas. Let me ask you about succession. We see photos of a girl, Kim Jong-un's daughter. Is she the heir apparent? Based on what we know about the protocols and the traditions behind North Korea's leadership succession, as of now, there is no concrete evidence for us to argue Kim Joo-ae, the daughter, is going to be the next in line for North Korea's regime leadership succession, as of now. But she keeps coming in pictures. We keep he keeps appearing with her. Seems deliberate. Kim Jong Un, the current leader, does consider Kim Joo-ae as his heir, the next in line to the succession of power. If that is truly his intention, it does come to risk for the current government to make the decision. The danger is if Kim Jong-un, the current leader, makes a public decisions recognizing Kim Joo-ae, his daughter, as a leader too soon, it creates speculations on current leader is only in his mid-30s, I believe, late 30s. So why is he so impatient to designate a successor? It could lead to questions on health, for instance, that maybe the leader is not healthy and therefore the leader needs to pick his successor too quickly. And that says speculations that probably Kim Jong-un, the current leader, does not want to get entrapped. What I have just explained is arguably a rational prediction of what leadership succession should look like in North Korea. 지금까지 얘기한 거는 상식적인, 논리적인 거로 설명한 거고. However, even though logically I analyze it's unlikely for Kim Joo-ae to be recognized as a leader, not yet at least, I'm also aware that seemingly unlogical, unrational decisions have occurred in North Korean politics. So the possibility of Kim Joo-ae, as you've mentioned, as becoming recognized as a successor is a distinct possibility that I'm not going to completely dismiss out of hand. So who knows? <laughs> who knows is that? Kim if Kim Jong-un does make it official public decisions to recognize his daughter as a successor, it could be a clue or sign that there might be certain new changes to his own physical or political health of a current leader, and therefore leadership succession has become urgent for the regime. So that could be an indicator. However, even among North Korean analysts, no one can make concrete predictions on this way or that way. So even among ourselves, we weigh the possibilities and look for more signs.
Kim Hyun-woo. Until 2014, he held a senior post in North Korea's Ministry of State Security. This is his first interview. Tomorrow, part two, his view on his country's relations with the U.S. and whether he will ever be able to go home. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. The Babson MBA helps you become a professional who takes action, leads with confidence, and tackles complex global challenges. Acquire the highly sought-after entrepreneurial mindset with a Babson MBA. Ranked number one in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report. Visit babson.edu MBA. And Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help animal welfare organizations throughout the Northeast. OceanStateJobLot.com. It's been a mixed day on Wall Street. The Dow came out on the plus side. It picked up a quarter of a percent. S&P and NASDAQ both lost ground, though. The S&P fell four-tenths of a percent. The NASDAQ was down more than one and a quarter percent. In the forecast, cloudy, breezy, coolish through the remainder of the afternoon and the evening. Some showers from time to time. Some surprise spots of sunshine in parts of the area, too. Tonight, clouds hang in there down around the mid-50s. Tomorrow should be another gray day with some random rain showers reaching the mid-60s once again. 63 degrees now in Boston at 421. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. You know, when we talk about the reach of WBUR and National Public Radio, and we're asking you right now, in fact, to help us pay for that, I'll give the phone number very briefly, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. A case in point in terms of that reach is the interview that you just heard, the first interview that has been given by a defector from the North Korean government. And what we heard there was his assessment of the toll that COVID has taken on North Korea, a country very ill-prepared to deal with the pandemic. We heard about the shipment of goods that has been continuing now from North Korea or ramped up from North Korea to China. And we heard about the succession of the uh, the next leader uh, of North Korea, very likely to be Kim Jong-un's um, daughter right now. And so we heard so many interesting things. We have to ask questions. Why is he defecting? Why is he revealing this about the government? You can be sure, and I'm, I'm here with Magna Chakrabarty right now, you can be sure that um, there are people in the State Department who are listening very closely to this <laughs> and will be listening again tomorrow as we were listening for very different reasons here. This is what you're paying for when you listen to WBUR. You're paying for access to news that you don't necessarily get anywhere else, and certainly that's the case uh, here with this interview, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. And I think what was most remarkable about this interview that we heard just now is that it wasn't just an ex- an external analysis of what is the significance of Kim Jong-un appearing frequently uh, in North Korean public with his daughter. It was an analysis from inside a, a man who spent years inside at the highest levels of that same government apparatus. So he was telling us this is what it means in North Korea, a very exceedingly rare view that we were all p- privileged to listen to, thanks to Mary Louise Kelly and NPR. And that's the kind of 
you know, unique voice that you hear on public radio, on WBUR, and it's what your contribution helps make possible. And the monthly contribution from supporting listeners means that WBUR can be a reliable source to bring you those kinds of rare voices month after month after month. So call now at one 800 909-9287, or if you prefer, you can uh, send us your monthly contribution through a quick hop over to our website, which is WBUR.org. And no matter whether you uh, go on the website or call 1-800-909-9287, you will have your donation tripled. This is only good until 6 o'clock tonight, and it is a really special offer, so we hope you'll take advantage of it. If you can give $15 a month, that will become $45, $45. a month for us. Thank you, Megan. <laughs> if you can afford, and we know not everybody can, if you can afford $100 a month, we get $300 a month, $5 a month because it becomes 15 So whatever you can afford, we're asking you to make a monthly contribution right now and get this uh, tripled by our generous donors of the Mower Society. Um, a question, you you know, do, do you think there are many stories that um, could have to do with fires in Canada that suddenly become local stories? <laughs> well, it sure is in Definitely. this case. And, and that's something we're going to be hearing about in just a couple of minutes. 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call or WBUR.org. And the way I see the importance of monthly contributions to this station is that your monthly contribution is a form of consistency. And that consistency leads to stability for WBUR. And stability for WBUR means we can stay reliable to you as the premier news source for stories both locally and around the world. So consistency, stability, reliability. It all comes together when you call 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. We hope you will right now. You can triple your donation by calling right now and giving on a monthly basis. Thank you so much. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Plymouth Gin Distillery. Plymouth Gin is imported from England's southwest coast, distilled using a blend of seven botanicals, including juniper berry, coriander seed, and citrus peel. Plymouth Gin since 1793. From Indeed, a hiring platform for helping businesses of all sizes attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. If you live in the Northeast U.S., then today you probably woke up to hazy skies. That's because of wildfires burning in eastern Canada, including around 150 fires in Quebec alone. Reporter Emma Jacobs joins me from Montreal. Hey there. Hi. Hi. So tell me, how bad are the fires right now in Canada? What's their impact there? It's bad. Like the U.S., Canadians have been waking up to orange, hazy skies in big cities like Ottawa and Toronto. Here in Montreal, you've been able to smell the fires for several days, though actually images from New York look worse right now. Uh, Many people have had to be evacuated from their homes in Quebec alone, around 15,000. Some of those evacuees live in pretty remote areas. Police have been out on the roads along the evacuation routes with gas cans in case evacuees ran out on the way. 
the province doesn't have the resources to fight all the fires burning right now. They can only fight about around 40 at a time. And we have about 150, as you said. So responders have focused their resources around protecting communities and infrastructure. And is more help on the way? As French President Emmanuel Macron tweeted this week, reinforcements are coming. Right now, there are about 670 personnel from Quebec and the Canadian military on the ground. The head of the provincial government, Premier Francois Legault, said today that they're hoping to receive more firefighter reinforcements. We hope to have more than 500 in the next few days coming from New Brunswick, France, United States, Portugal, Spain, and Mexico. But fires have been unusually bad all across Canada this spring. So there's a lot of demand even for the same equipment. Quebec had additional water bombers on loan from Newfoundland, but they had to be returned home because that province had its own wildfires to deal with. That sounds really bad. And so early in the fire season, I do want to ask, do we know what the role of climate change may be in these fires? Climate change, climate change means more hot and dry conditions that can feed more extreme fires. A lot of records broke this spring. Quebec has already had the worst year on record in terms of area burned, and it is early. Projections show that fire risk remains high into the normal wildfire season for most of Canada. That's the rest of June, July, and August. Another worrying aspect of this is that climate change not only makes these fires worse, but they contribute to climate change. Mike Flanagan is a researcher at Thompson Rivers University in British Columbia. He said the boreal forests in Canada are a huge carbon sink. There's this vast store of legacy carbon that's been building since the last ice age. A fire can go through and can put that carbon back into the atmosphere in one big blast, which will feed the warming. So it's kind of a, a positive feedback a cascading effect that may be coming into play. He told me people can play a role in helping the situation. About 50% of wildfires in Canada are caused by humans. Mm -hmm. He also says firefighting resources should be deployed more strategically to prevent the small percentage of really massive fires that burn most of the area. That is reporter Emma Jacobs in Montreal. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MIT Museum, with captivating exhibitions and dynamic programming that turn MIT inside out. Curious what the buzz is about? Plan your visit today. And Direct Tire and Auto Service, a dealer alternative, your local mechanic and tire dealer serving Newton, Watertown, and the surrounding communities, directtire.com. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Missouri today became the 19th state with a law that bans gender-affirming medical care for transgender youth. As NPR's Melissa Block tells us, Republican Governor Mike Parson also signed a bill that bans trans women and girls from competing on female sports teams. Governor Parson signed the bills privately, telling reporters, we really just didn't want to draw attention to it. 
The trans medical care ban prohibits puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones for those under 18. It also bars Medicaid from covering gender-affirming treatments for adults. The trans sports ban applies to students from kindergarten through college. Missouri's new laws were signed one week into LGBTQ Pride Month and one day after a federal judge issued a preliminary injunction in Florida, keeping that state's trans care ban from going into effect. According to the ACLU, Missouri legislators filed 48 bills this session that limit LGBTQ rights. That's more than any other state. Melissa Block, NPR News. The European Union has launched legal action against Poland over its controversial new law that establishes a special committee to investigate cases of so-called Russian influence inside that country. NPR's Rob Schmitz has more on the story from Warsaw. At the core of this dispute is Poland's new law that sets up a committee with prosecutor-like powers to hold hearings on public officials deemed to be under Russian influence. Penalties for those accused include bans on holding public office. Critics of the law say the sole reason the ruling party passed it was to eliminate its biggest opposition candidate, Donald Tusk, a former prime minister that the ruling party has accused of overseeing the deepening of Poland's reliance on Russian fossil fuels. NPR's Rob Schmitz, the legal procedure could end up in the European Court of Justice, which can impose daily fines on Poland if it refuses to comply with its ruling. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. The head of the MBTA Advisory Board believes the T's safety plan submitted to the Federal Transit Administration will be approved. The T was forced to resubmit its plan to protect track workers after the FTA called the proposal first insufficient. Advisory Board Executive Director Brian Kane tells WBUR's Radio Boston he remains concerned about the lack of MBTA dispatchers. Those folks need to be incredibly experienced and incredibly nimble in their activities and incredibly nimble in their way to speak over the system-wide radio. And I just worry that they might not have enough seasoned folks to do that. Kane is also worried about the MBTA's attempts to retain experienced veteran employees. Researchers at Tufts University say a state program to support affordable housing is underutilized. The Community Preservation Act provides money to cities and towns for housing, but funds can also be used to preserve historic and open space. Evan Horowitz leads Tufts Center for State Policy Analysis, which co-authored the study. He says more than one-third of participating communities are failing to meet the housing requirement of the act. It's one of the things they can do, but it could be the preeminent thing that, they're, that they can do or should do. And so with, you know, just some slight new incentives, towns would really have new reason to say, you know what, let's use this money to build housing. Horowitz says state housing incentives should strive to double the amount of funding for housing under the Community Preservation Act. The state is not allowing logging in state forests for at least another six months. New logging contracts have not been signed since Governor Maura Healy took office. The administration announced today it wants to develop guidelines that acknowledge the role of forests in fighting climate change. Chris Egan is with the industry group Massachusetts Forest Alliance. He says the moratorium is making it difficult for loggers and sawmills to keep working. That could be 30 percent of their business. So to lose 30 percent of your business for a year, that can cause some economic challenges. The Healy administration says science supports some logging on state land along with forest conservation efforts. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru, introducing the all-new, all-electric Subaru Solterra on Route 60 in Belmont and at citysidesubaru.com. Love is now electric. 
Smoky skies again, lasting until about midnight tonight. Clouds should linger down around 53 degrees. Tomorrow should be a lot like today. Cloudy skies in the mid-60s, spring showers likely. And then Friday, more showers, maybe the rumble of thunder as well, holding to the mid-60s. This is WBUR. It's 435. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by A Street Frames. 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. Museum-quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston. AStreetFrames.com And AAFCPAs, accounting, audit, tax, advisory, and wealth management for nonprofits, commercial companies, and individuals. AAFCPA.com Have you ever wondered how you would feel if tomorrow you woke up and public radio was just gone? Oh, man. That would be tough. I think it would be devastating. Well, I would grieve because there would be no replacement for it. We asked listeners around the country that very question. I've been listening to NPR for a long time. So NPR has been a giant part of my life. And I would be devastated if it wasn't there anymore. It would be a very depressing ride to work. I don't know if there's enough cups of coffee in the world that would be able to get me over that. There, There really is nothing else like it. We donate, but there's a lot of people out there that listen that probably don't donate, and I think uh, that's a really great thing to put into perspective is, how would you feel? There's an easy way to feel good about public radio and the financial health of your station. Just support it. Really, do it right now. Call or go online. Your tax-deductible contribution will help ensure public radio isn't going anywhere. It'll be here when you turn on your radio tomorrow. And thanks. Great to know that public radio isn't going anywhere, but it's better to know the public radio will be strong and stronger and stronger for the years to come. And that's where your donation comes in right now. That's where your contribution comes in right now. That's why we're asking for monthly subscribers, those people, and we're looking for a total of 700 new monthly subscribers during this fund drive. Those are the people who know that our budgets are are fixed to a certain extent, but we have to respond to the news as it happens, wherever it takes us. And when we are strong, we can be more ambitious. And we reap the results of that, and you reap the results, the benefit of that as well. Here's the number, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. By the way, I'm Lisa Mullins here with Magna Chakrabarty. Lisa, did you do a double take when you, when the, you just heard them say, imagine for a moment if public radio was just gone. I was like, wait, what? (laughs) No one told us. (laughs) I mean, this is one of those things that is virtually unimaginable. You don't want to think about it. Well, and the reason why, uh, in fact, it's probably good to shake us out of our complacency every once in a while is that it's a reminder that without adequate funding, it's hard for us to continue to give you the kind of news and information, stories and voices that you really need in this ever-confusing world of ours. And so that's why we're asking you to consider a monthly contribution to WBUR of whatever amount you can give, whether it's $5, $10, $100, because the consistency of those monthly contributions means that we can really stay stable as a reliable news source for you. And now is really the time to do it because your monthly contribution is eligible for a 2 to one match, thanks to generous listeners from our Murrow Society. So if you can give $5 a month, that makes it 15. If you can give it, give $50 a month, that makes it 150. If $100 is in your uh, reach, that means your contribution becomes $300 a month for WBUR, which means it's actually 
for you because it comes back to you in the form of our journalism. So 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call before 6 o'clock, right, Lisa? Before 6 o'clock because that's when we're ending fundraising for the day today, and that's when this triple match ends as well. By the way, the fund drive is a really short one. It is over tomorrow, so we're hoping that you will take advantage of the triple match. I don't know if we're going to have one tomorrow or not, so this is a really effective way to uh, support WBUR. And when you think about being on steady footing, as Megna was talking about there, you you want to be a part of a journalism enterprise that is stable, not where people are constantly looking over their shoulder. And that's the way we want it as well. There are too many really worthy journalistic outfits that are having to worry about collapsing. Too many where uh, the the news becomes suddenly opinion and more advertising, and then the journalism suffers. And the readers, the listeners suffer as well. We don't want that. So please keep us strong with your monthly contribution right now, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. And only until 6 o'clock tonight, you can have your pledge tripled thanks to some generous members of the Morrow Society. So please don't let them leave any money on the table. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Thank you. Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com slash NPR. And from Angie, Angie's List is now Angie, dedicated to helping homeowners get home projects done well, from everyday repairs to dream remodels. Reviews, pricing, and booking are at Angie.com or on the Angie app. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The destruction of the Kohovka Dam in southern Ukraine has added another struggle to the daily lives of people in Kherson. The city, downriver from the dam, is now seeing widespread flooding in addition to near-constant shelling by Russian troops. Today, one of our producers spoke to Olena Nikolova. She's a journalist in Kherson. As we know, approximately one-third of the city is flooded and these are mainly lowlands in the southern part of Kherson and localities. One of the districts of Kherson is completely flooded. In Kherson there are no panic at all. People are just uh, keep going, helping and supporting each other. Nikolova says yes, the flooding is disastrous, but it is the relentless shelling that's so stressful. The shellings are everywhere. They may reach any district of our city, unfortunately. We can hear the sounds of the artillery strikes uh, right now while we're talking to you. We hear from our windows. We, we just uh, have to hide in the hallways while uh, shellings are too close to our house. This is quite dangerous to come close to the windows while shellings. The Dnipro River runs through Ukraine, which remains in control of the western side near Kherson, while Russia occupies the eastern side. People here were just abandoned by the occupiers. The Russians do not provide any assistance, any help, and do not provide evacuation. People are just sitting right on the roofs of their houses, uh, crying for help, their lack of water and food. 
their uh, telephones are on the minimal charge. They soon will not manage to call someone. And this is a real tragedy. And yet, Nikolova says she is so grateful to be home. You know, I'm happy because I'm home. After the relocation, when we had to move to the city of Ternopil in the western Ukraine, when Kherson was uh, in occupation, that was one of the hardest times in my life. Ternopil is great and people are kind, but Kherson is my hometown. I was so happy to return. Yes, it's scary here, of course. I'm not a hero from the movies. Nikolova returned to Kherson in December after the liberation of the city from Russian forces. I saw my family, my mother, when we at last reunited. It was one of the happiest days of my life. And the shellings, the flood, this madness of the war, it's nothing. The life goes on. And we here continue our work and just leave. This is our duty. We must do something. We must do the best to make our victory closer and support each other. Journalist Olena Nikolova sharing a little of her daily life, speaking to us today from her home in Kherson. What's the soundtrack to the CEO of a news empire heading for the exits? Well, it might include this. Nikki Haley is in her prime. Sorry. When a woman is considered to be in her prime in her 20s and 30s and maybe 40s. What do you that's call not a Wait. I, that's not a Or it could sound a bit like this. Can I, do you mind? I would like for you to answer the question. Okay, it's very simple to answer. That's why I asked it. It's very simple to You're a nasty person, I'll tell you. <laughs> Those are just a couple of the moments on CNN that led up to Chris Licht losing his job as chairman and CEO. He was there just over a year. Media journalist Dylan Byers is a founding partner and senior correspondent for Puck and also used to work at CNN. Thanks for being here, Dylan. Thank you for having me. To begin with, briefly remind us about where Licht came from and how he wound up in charge of CNN. Sure. He, uh, before joining CNN, had a sort of reputation in the uh, broader news media industry as a sort of wonderkind executive producer. He had been the founding executive producer of Morning Joe, uh, CBS This Morning in the Gail King, Charlie Rose, Nora O'Donnell era, and then finally the executive producer for The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. And so his his reputation was, as as a programmer, what he did not have on his CV was the um the experience running a major media organization, let alone a global 24-hour multi-platform channel such as CNN. So let's talk Uh, about a couple of the things that went wrong. We heard two of the misfires there, the new CNN morning show featuring anchor Don Lemon, who looked later fired, and he ended the morning show. We heard from the live town hall with former President Donald Trump and moderator Caitlin Collins. Apart from those two big misfires, what else went wrong for Licht over the last year? Sure. The, the the problems were myriad, truly, and, and they started almost from the beginning. He never succeeded in establishing a relationship uh, with with the organization itself, with the people who worked for him. And that was true from some of the most notable on-air talent all the way down to the rank-and-file staff. He, he also crucially failed to articulate a, a vision, not just a vision for how CNN could succeed in the in, in a future when traditional television is sort of in decline, 
but but even how it could succeed on TV. I mean, he went a year without doing a prime time, uh, putting in place a, a prime time lineup. He tried to launch a morning show with Don Lemon, which sort of blew up in his face, as, as you noted with that clip. Um, he programmed a Trump town hall, which he thought was going to be the sort of crowning achievement of his early tenure, and, and which quickly turned into a Trump rally, um, or at yeah. least it felt like one. That, that angered a lot of, of the staff. And, and then last point quickly, I would say he, he left so many of the staff there feeling sort of alienated and, and as though he wasn't proud of the work that they had been doing before he arrived. And that was exacerbated and, uh, by a 15,000-word profile The Atlantic published over the weekend by Tim Alberta, which followed, uh, after that was published, Licht apologized to staffers this week for being a distraction, promised to turn things around. Do you think the profile led to his departure or simply made clear why it was needed? The profile made clear why it was needed. I would say, I would say the frustrations continued to mount over the course of his entire tenure, again, starting very early. They were exacerbated, certainly, by that Trump town hall. The, but, but the profile did, you could argue, was the straw that broke the camel's back. It is certainly something that took these problems, to, turned them into a very, into a sort of almost national story, and so frustrated some of the most notable names at CNN that it became an untenable situation for the CNN parent company, Warner Brothers Discovery, to keep Chris Licht in that chair. Just briefly, you've reported that the chief of CNN's parent company, David Zaslav, who saw the network as too liberal and too outspoken, was kind of the guiding hand behind the scenes. So is the next CEO going to face many of the same challenges that Licht did? The, yes, the, the, the thesis, the, the editorial pivot to the center will not change. I think it's a question now of execution. Can you get a CEO in there? who is more capable at pulling this off, uh, this editorial pivot, while simultaneously making good television. That is Dylan Byers, former media reporter for CNN, now founding partner and senior correspondent for Puck. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered. Top wrestlers in India have been protesting against a ruling party lawmaker, accusing him of sexually harassing several female athletes, including a minor. The International Olympic Committee has condemned the Indian police's treatment of the protesting wrestlers. From Delhi, Shalu Yadav reports. An unprecedented moment in the history of sports in India. The police dragged some of the country's top wrestlers on the streets and detained them. Two Olympians, along with two-time world champion, had been protesting for months, which saw its climax in this moment last month. The policemen's job is to arrest the culprit. But instead, they're using their power to crush us. India's first female wrestler to get an Olympic medal for the country Sakshi Malik screamed in frustration as the police vehicle drove her away. The culprit, the protesters say, is Bridgebhushan Singh. They accuse him of sexual misconduct towards some of the country's best-known female wrestlers. But just three miles away, as the protesters were beaten to the ground, Singh was posing gleefully for the cameras at the grand event hosted by Prime Minister Narendra Modi for inauguration of the new parliament. 
Bridgepushan Singh is no ordinary man. He's a six-term lawmaker who holds a huge clout in the northern state of Uttar Pradesh that's governed by the ruling party BJP, which sends the maximum number of MPs to the parliament. Now, the senior politician is accused by the country's seven most high-profile wrestlers, including a minor, of groping them, stalking them, demanding sexual favours and threatening them if they refuse to entertain his advances. He denies all the allegations. If the charges against me are proved, I will hang myself to death. If they have proof against me, bring it to the fore. The wrestlers say that they do have evidence, but the police are not bringing the investigation forward. Under the Indian law, any person accused of abusing a minor is required to be arrested as proceedings continue. But this did not happen. The wrestler's patience is wearing thin. With their medals bundled up and clutched to their chest, the dejected sports stars welled up as they reached the banks of Holy River Ganges, threatening to immerse their medals in it. Many here were reminded of the moment when legendary American boxer Muhammad Ali threw his medal away in the Ohio River to protest racism. Shocking allegations of sexual harassment made by some of India's biggest names in wrestling the controversy has uncovered a rot within the sports system in India that so far remained carefully covered by the glorious sheen of medals. Many are calling this the Me Too movement of Indian sports that would encourage other victims to open up about sexual abuse. The International Olympic Committee called the turn of events disturbing and demanded an unbiased investigation into the matter. But with Singh's close association to the ruling BJP party, there's no guarantee that the wrestlers will find justice anytime soon, says Sharda Ugra, who's a long-time sports commentator in India. I have no expectation that any act will come from there. It depends on what cause the Prime Minister's office wants to attach itself to. And the cause of wrestlers protesting is definitely not one of them. It's very, very obvious. A tough dilemma staring in the face of the Indian government. Whether to choose medals over morals. For NPR News, I'm Shalu Yadav in Delhi. And this is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders, movers, and changemakers to close opportunity gaps, advance equity, and power a better Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. What are the biggest threats to democracy? Well, misinformation, voter suppression, and how about the steep decline of local journalism? I'm Elsa Chang. WBUR and NPR believe that public media is the enduring future of local reporting. But we won't win the fight on our own. We need more member dollars to be your eyes and ears when important decisions are made, to bring more diverse voices into the conversation, and to be the ones to hold power to account. Become a member today at WBUR.org. Not only today, we hope if you're not a member yet, you'll do so within just about the next hour and five minutes because we have a triple match on the table. This is one of those incentives that we hope you will not overlook. This fun drive is going to be over almost at about this time tomorrow. 
And for just about the next hour or so, we have this triple match that means that whatever you give on a monthly basis will be um, matched dollar for dollar, uh, tripled, I should say, dollar for dollar. So if you can give $15, it becomes 45 for us. If you can afford $100 a month, it becomes 300 for us. We're just hoping you will take advantage of it right now for everything that you've been hearing on the air today on WBUR, 1-800-909-9287 is the number, or pledge online at WBUR.org. But this two-for-one match only lasts until 6 o'clock, right? So there's just barely a little bit over an hour to take advantage of it. And there are so many reasons that uh, your money goes far here at WBUR. Uh, Let me offer you one in particular. Our CEO, Margaret Lowe, joined Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi for a conversation about WBUR's role in your life and your role in WBUR's life. And Margaret talked about the impact of some of our recent work. So let's listen. We just won an award for a show we produced about a little known epidemic, survivors of domestic violence who are living with traumatic brain injury. We talk all the time about this issue with football players, right? But almost never about the estimated tens of millions of women who are walking around with brain injuries from abusive partners. And many of them actually have no idea what's causing things like lapses in memory, difficulty concentrating problems with balance or vision or fatigue until they finally, if they finally do, get diagnosed. So the show I'm talking about profiled a woman named Freya Doe, and we actually used a pseudonym to protect her safety. In any case, she shared her story of the abuse she suffered from the beginning of her first marriage when she was just 18 years old. And then, many years later, she finally understood what had caused her issues. Let's listen. And having an answer to what was going on with me was such a relief. And it also allowed me to realize that What happened to me was not a shameful thing. The shame did not belong on me. The shame belonged on him. We heard from so many listeners after the show. One woman who wrote explained how she too was in an abusive marriage and went on to say this. Yet even with professional help, traumatic brain injury was never a consideration in my diagnoses and treatments. This show helped me to finally end the ongoing questions of self-doubt and blame that have haunted me for 65 years. Truth, this listener wrote, is always better late than never. Please accept my profound thanks for shining the light on this invisible epidemic. Getting a note like that, realizing that our reporting this story helped one person make sense of her whole life, it's pretty extraordinary. Absolutely. And, you know, the late great journalist and writer Joan Didion said, we tell ourselves stories in order to live. And that's why BUR is here, to help make sense of the world, to help us understand life experiences beyond our own. Stories do that. I mean, they tether us together and remind us of what we have in common and really of our own humanity. That's WBUR CEO Margaret Lowe. And I have to say, the uh, story that she was just talking about there was produced by On Point producer Paige Sutherland, and it was an hour of On Point that won two awards, in fact. Big awards, in uh, fact. Congratulations. A a national award from the Alliance of Women in Journalism and a regional Edward R. Murrow Award. And the email that Margaret read landed in my 
inbox, and I'll never forget receiving it uh, after the, the show aired. And I got another one from a woman who said she had just heard the show and the next day was about to go to court mm. uh, to testify against her abuse, former uh, abusive partner. So this is the kind of coverage, uh, not just from On Point, but from all across WBUR, that your contribution helps make possible. And we really mean it. We put stuff on the air that we don't think you're going to hear anywhere else. So if you want to continue that day in and day out, please call now at 1-800-909-9287. And also we put things on the air and we don't necessarily know what kind of impact they're going to have. I mean, Magna, I'm guessing that you and Paige and the rest of the staff did not know the kind of response you would get no, from not people for whom traumatic brain injury in domestic violence resonated and that's kind of added value to what we're doing here. So just know that when you support WBUR, and we hope you will right now while this triple match is on the table, that you are having an impact. You are making stories like that, hours like that possible. Every single thing that you hear on the air comes at a cost because you listen and because we know you appreciate it. We hope you will pay for it now. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. You can triple your monthly contribution to WBUR by calling right now. Once again, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. And thank you so much. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Subaru and its retailers, partnering with the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society this June to give blankets and messages of hope to patients facing cancer. Learn more at Subaru.com care. From Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 manage food for work with online ordering from restaurants nationwide, budgeting tools, and payment by invoice. EasyCater.com. From Progressive, Progressive Commercial Auto Insurance protects the cars, trucks, and vans that work to keep small businesses moving forward, including protection while running errands and other tasks, at ProgressiveCommercial.com. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. I'm On Point Executive Producer Jonathan Dyer, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUA Tisbury and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. In some ways, it looks like a throwback to large U.S. cities decades ago. On the East Coast, cities including New York, Washington, and parts of the Midwest are blanketed in a thick, acrid haze. New York City's especially hard hit, prompting a rare warning from Mayor Eric Adams urging people to stay in their homes if possible. We recommend vulnerable New Yorkers stay inside. And all New Yorkers should limit outdoor activity to the greatest extent possible. Tailpipe emissions from cars are not to blame for the thick, smog-like haze. Rather, it is huge wildfires burning in neighboring Canada. The smoke from the fires has drifted south, creating unhealthy air conditions in many areas, as well as delaying flights. More than 400 wildfires are burning in Canada. 
Former Vice President Mike Pence has opened his 2024 presidential bid with a shot at former President Donald Trump. Pence, referring to his former boss and running mate, saying anyone who puts themselves over the Constitution should never be president of the United States, and anyone who asks someone to put them over the Constitution should never be president again. Pence also accused Trump of abandoning conservative principles, particularly on abortion. North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum has announced he's running for president. He's seeking the Republican nomination in a crowded field of candidates, including former Vice President Mike Pence, who announced today. NPR's Ashley Lopez has more. Doug Burgum became a billionaire after creating a software company in North Dakota and later selling it to Microsoft. During an event with supporters in Fargo, Burgum positioned himself as a savvy business leader who can improve the nation's economy. Technology is changing every job, every company, and every industry. And this change will become more rapid than ever before. We need new leadership for the changing economy. Burgum has been North Dakota's governor since 2016. He garnered some media attention this year for signing a law that restricts access to gender-affirming medical treatments for children and teens. He also signed into law one of the strictest bans on abortion in the country. Ashley Lopez, NPR News. Officials in Florida are confirming the state flew three dozen migrants from the U.S.-Mexico border to California. As NPR's Joel Rose explains, Florida says the migrants went willingly. After several days of silence, the administration of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis took credit for flying the migrants from El Paso to Sacramento. A spokeswoman for the Florida Division of Emergency Management insists that the migrants, mostly from Venezuela and Colombia, boarded the private planes voluntarily. Florida released a video compilation that appeared to show people signing consent forms and expressing gratitude for being treated well. But California officials dismissed the video as propaganda and say the migrants were coerced to travel under false pretenses. The state's attorney general, Rob Bonta, says he's investigating whether any violations of criminal or civil law occurred. Joel Rose, NPR News. The mix closed on Wall Street today. The Dow was up 91 points. The Nasdaq closed down 171 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts environmental officials are warning people with asthma and certain other health conditions to avoid prolonged outdoor activity this evening. An air quality alert remains in effect until midnight tonight because of drifting smoke from the Canadian wildfires. A former state energy and environmental affairs secretary will be the new leader of the country's oldest land trust. Trustees of reservations today named Katie Theoridis as its president and CEO. She served in the Baker administration. And Vineyard Wind is installing the first pieces of the offshore wind farm it's constructing off Martha's Vineyard. 62 wind turbine foundations will be put in place over the summertime. The project will generate electricity for more than 400,000 homes in Massachusetts. Red Sox hope to add a second win to their series with the Cleveland Guardians tonight. It's game two of three in Cleveland. Cutter Crawford will get the start for Boston against Tanner Beebe. And in the forecast, showers off and on this evening and for the first part of tonight. should be cloudy tonight, down around 53 degrees. Then tomorrow, gray skies again. Another good chance of showers. Temperatures in the low 50s. Not a lot of change on Friday. Mostly cloudy. The chance of thunderstorms. 64 degrees still in Boston at 5.05. WBUR supporters include Workday an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. 
This is 90.9 WBUR, taking just a couple of minutes to tell you about something very important to us. We have one hour left in fundraising today. Tomorrow is the final day of this very short June fundraiser. We're hoping that you will call right now because some generous Morrow Society listeners are tripling your pledge. Your monthly gift to WBUR will be tripled when you call just in the next 55 minutes. And we have many interesting stories coming up, by the way, in the next hour. We think you, you'll believe are worth paying for, including what's happening with the smoky skies in Massachusetts and in other parts of the United States. You're going to be hearing about the Camp Lejeune lawsuit that you may have been hearing about on television. Tens of thousands of lawsuits may follow those initial ones that are being heard. This is what we're asking you to pay for right now. Help us pay for it because you get the results every day when you listen to WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins with Magna Chakrabarty. And Lisa, you're mentioning uh, the uh, the orange sun and those hazy skies uh, here in Boston yesterday. Uh, my Twitter feed was full of pictures of New York City with mm-hmm. the worst air quality New York City has seen in a long time, all connected to those fires going on, those wildfires going on in Canada. And you know what they're saying now, that New York City today anyway has the worst air pollution in the world. In the world. Yeah. So it's all connected. You see, there, there's nothing that happens in isolation. And in order to understand the way that um, news news ha- is connected or events are connected to what we're living here in the greater Boston area, you need smart journalism to help navigate through that. And that's what WBUR provides consistently day in and day out every day, week, month, and year. And we want to keep doing that consistently year after year for you, which is why a regular uh, funding source makes that possible. It's essential for us to keep WBR strong and on the air. So that's why we're asking you to take advantage of this opportunity now. Call in with a monthly monthly contribution, whatever is within your reach, and the Murrow Society listeners will generously give a two to one match, but it only lasts for another 53 minutes. So call 1-800-909-9287. I don't know if we're supposed to talk about the t-shirts or not, but since oh, you yeah. happen to have one right, right in front here. of you, Magna, that's, this, the, if, if everything that we've been telling you is not enough, your um, gift of $10 a month will get you one of these great t-shirts that we're not supposed to call mustard anymore, but kind of a golden <laughs> it's something. It's golden something. Yes, and yes. it looks very good on Megna, who's holding it up right now, at least. Um, so so this color, I have to say, is very attractive. And as it's you can, bold. It's bold, and as you can attest, it's very soft as well, the, uh, the t-shirt itself. So it's yours for $10 a month. Make your phone call right now, because that $10 a month becomes 30 dollars a month for us without anything else coming out of your bank account. And so please take advantage of it. You're about to hear some fascinating news from all over the world. That comes at a cost, whether it comes from India or the story comes from Canada or it comes from Cambridge. Whatever it is comes at a cost. Help us pay for it because you reap the benefits of this kind of independent journalism. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. Thanks so much. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at certapro.com. That's Serta with a C. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Coming up, Apple says soon you will no longer have a ducking problem. 
confused? We'll explain in a bit. We're going to start, though, with cities in the eastern U.S., from the Great Lakes to Boston, cities that have been blanketed with orange smoke flowing south from vast wildfires burning in Canada. The haze is so intense that people are being urged to stay inside or wear masks, and airlines are canceling some flights. Here's New York City Mayor Eric Adams. From the gloom over Yankee Stadium to the smoky haze obscuring our skyline. We can see it, we can smell it, and we felt it. NPR's Brian Mann joins us now from upstate New York, up near the Canadian border. Hey there, Brian. Hey, Mayor Louise. So I know the governor of New York is calling this an emergency, a crisis. What else are you hearing? Yeah, health officials are really worried. They're asking people with health conditions to remain indoors. New York urged schools to cancel all outdoor recreation because of this poor air quality. Of course, staying inside is just not possible for a lot of people. So if you do have to go outdoors, health officials saying you should use a high quality mask like the N95s we use during the pandemic. Mm. And just remind everybody here who exactly should be taking extra precautions. Well, this isn't healthy for anyone, so this isn't a great time for outdoor exercise for all of us, but people with heart or respiratory issues, including asthma, are at really elevated risk. Also, the elderly and young children and pregnant women. As a result, a lot of outdoor public events have been canceled across the Northeast. One interesting detail, though, Major League Baseball has gone forward uh, during all this with some games in New York City, and there is another game scheduled tonight in Philadelphia. Yeah, it is interesting. When I went for my run this morning, I could smell the smoke and the skies have been gray all day. But the pictures from New York are something else. Dark orange skies, people out in masks, as you said. What, what are people you talk to saying about just how it feels? Yeah, it is nerve-wracking. This stuff is so thick. LaGuardia Airport issued a full ground stop for a while today because of low visibility. It's not the way we wanted to start summer. Uh, our colleagues at WNYC caught up with Matthew Andalcio, a sanitation worker in Brooklyn. Honestly, it's kind of hard to breathe with the, with the air quality that's going on, but it's, it's very, very scary, to be honest. And I'm hearing this a lot from my neighbors here in northern New York, Mary Louise, especially my older neighbors. A lot of them feel trapped by this and unsettled. Sure. Um, just to remind, the smoke is all coming from Canada, from wildfires burning there. What do we know about how these fires started? Well, it's been an extremely dry start to summer in the east. And over the weekend, there was a squall of storms in the province of Quebec. I spoke about this today with Scott McKim. He's a scientist who monitors air quality at a research station in New York's Adirondack Mountains. And he says that initial flare up then followed with a huge burst of fires. A five, six hour window on Saturday produced over 200 fires based on lightning strikes. And then ever since then, those fires have been gaining in almost up to a million acres now. So now these wind patterns are sending a chimney of smoke that's just funneling across the eastern U.S. And McKim told me he's actually seen a spike in a substance called black carbon. He says it's unlike anything his station has ever recorded. Uh, typically, we see numbers in the tens of ranges. Um, yesterday, we hit 2,000 uh, just off the charts, and that's all transport of black carbon from fires hundreds of miles away. So that kind of gunk and pollution from burning trees, that's what we're all breathing right now if we're not careful. And how long is this supposed to last, Brian? You know, they're talking uh, about it easing over the next few days as wind patterns shift, but probably no real relief until Saturday. U.S. fire crews are in Quebec right now helping battle these blazes, but they're not going to be contained anytime soon. And one more thing officials are watching is drought conditions are also severe on this side of the border, so fires are possible here as well. And briefly, what do we know about links to climate change? 
yeah, people are saying this is something that could be linked to climate change. In, in a tweet just today, New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy, Murphy described this moment as tangible, devastating evidence of the intensifying climate crisis. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. And Pierre's Brian Mann reporting from northern New York. When Congress decided last year to allow people harmed by contaminated water on Camp Lejeune to sue the government, it set the stage for what could become one of the largest mass torts in history. Up to a million people, most of them former Marines and their families, may have been exposed to the water. Now, the handful of federal judges handling the case are trying to avoid getting swamped by lawsuits. Jay Price of member station WUNC reports. Judge James Dever opened the very first hearing by evoking the length of the Roman Empire. In his estimation, about 1,900 years. He said that's how long it could take him and his three colleagues in the U.S. Eastern District of North Carolina to try the cases individually. That, he proclaimed, is not what's going to happen. Judge Dever directed the government defense attorneys to tell the Navy to start resolving claims administratively before they reach the court. And he told the dozens of plaintiffs' attorneys packing the courtroom they'll need to choose leaders to help the court work on the settlement process. It's going to become a rocket docket. That's plaintiffs' attorney Michael Watts of San Antonio outside the courthouse afterwards. He said it was clear the court will push through speedy settlements. Which is what it needs to do because uh, our clients, because the exposure was so long ago, are up there in age and they can't wait around for lawyers to dicker around for years and years and years and years. Judge Dever's show of control was also a signal the judges plan to steer the case with a firm hand rather than simply preside as it plays out. New York University law professor Arthur R. Miller has studied how courts handle mass cases. He says managerial judging, as it's called, has been on the rise since the 1960s. Where the role of a judge, particularly a federal judge, has slowly transformed from the historic concept of the judge as an umpire to the judge as a manager. He calls this the most significant transformation in judging in his lifetime and says ever larger cases like those involving asbestos and opioids made it essential. Well, you can't adjudicate 100,000 cases. You just can't. It's not practical for the courts, nor for aging plaintiffs like those sickened by Camp Lejeune water, which was first tainted by chemicals 70 years ago. Miller says cases settled in the aggregate can save years, but there are trade-offs. For one, it really undermines the concept of the individual's right to a day in court. These people will never get a jury trial. They will not have a formal day in court. Judge Dever cited a model for the Lejeune cases. The settlement for about 10,000 rescue and cleanup workers who got sick after the 9-11 attack on the World Trade Center. The differences between individual cases were complicated, so that judge ordered creation of a database with detailed information about each claim. It helped reveal most weren't for serious problems and streamlined the settlement process. Aaron Twersky, a Brooklyn Law School professor, was a special master the judge appointed to help run the case. Ultimately, I think everything fell aside except the severities of the injuries. The judges in the Lejeune case have ordered creation of a similar database. One name in it will be Michael Partain's. He's become a prominent activist in the case and attended the hearing. Partain lived on the base as a child in the 1960s and later developed male breast cancer, which is rare but significantly more common among those exposed to the Lejeune water. 
walking in here today, 16 years after I got involved in this issue, was a welcome beginning, a beginning of the end. But just a beginning. It took about six years for the 9-11 settlements to be finalized. The Lejeune case may be off to a faster start, but it's potentially much larger. More than 65,000 people have already filed claims with the Navy, with many more expected. For NPR News, I'm Jay Price in Raleigh, North Carolina. WBUR supporters include BG Catering Concepts, who believes in the power of great food to bring people together. Learn more at bgcateringconcepts.com. This is 90.9 WBUR. It was a mixed day on Wall Street. The Dow came out on the plus side. It picked up about a quarter of a percent. S&P and NASDAQ both lost ground. The S&P fell four-tenths of a percent. The NASDAQ was down more than one and a quarter percent. In the forecast, holding steady at 64 degrees now. Showers off and on for the first part of the night tonight. Should be overcast tonight, down around 53 degrees. And for tomorrow, gray again. Showers again, temperatures in the low 50s, and then Friday, more of the same. Mostly cloudy with a chance of some thunderstorms during the day. Temperatures in the mid-60s. It's now 519. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by members of the Massachusetts Energy Marketers Association, committed to reducing carbon emissions with clean, renewable bioheat fuel. MyBioHeat.com. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on WBUR is All Things Considered. The House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries talks about the debt ceiling, his relationships with congressional leadership, and his hopes for the next six months. That's just one of many stories that we have coming up on WBUR. Many interviews that we're featuring today, some absolutely fascinating stories. And you know that by the end of the day, you, when you listen to WBUR, have been entertained in some cases, have been edified, have been um, uh, uh, made aware of perhaps a lawsuit that you weren't aware of, a cultural event such as what's happening in India with those professional wrestlers who are accusing uh, some members of the uh, ruling political party of sexual harassment and how this has become a huge issue in the culture there. There are so many stories that we know that you appreciate hearing. Please know that they come at a cost to us, every single one of them. And please help defray that right now with your monthly pledge, if you can, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. And no matter how digital the world becomes and how much digital technology is involved in spreading information, generating the reporting around that information and around those news events still takes people. Right. We we don't yet have robots doing the reporting or doing the interviews. I think you've done stories Knock about this, uh, I know we just did an hour about deep fakes today, but the, <laughs> we're not yet there. Where we are, though, is uh, at a place where WBUR is staffed with people who are utterly dedicated to the idea of bringing you the best news and information you can you can find anywhere that you that you rely on to help you prepare for an uncertain future. And we want to be able to do that year in and year out, which is why consistency of funding for us is incredibly important. And that comes directly from you. We have a totally transparent business model. You provide the funding that puts WBUR on the air, and we, in return, give you the journalism that you expect. 
to continue that going forward, please consider being a monthly contributor to this station. Call 1-800-909-9287 and do it before 6 o'clock, right, Lisa? Right, because uh, that's when this uh, triple match is off the table, so please take advantage of it. Maybe you're a newcomer to WBUR, or maybe you're a newcomer to fundraising and to um, the, the fact that we rely on you, our listeners, in aggregate for the majority of our operating budget. We hope you understand that. If you don't, then please know that right now is a great chance to get in on the act, to help WBUR be strong, be stable, be prepared for the future, because we all benefit from that. So triple your monthly pledge by calling now, 1-800-909-9287, or go to WBUR.org. And thank you so much. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. And from BritBox with the latest season of Father Brown Season 10. This and more mysteries following unofficial detectives, including Miss Marple and Jonathan Creek, streaming at BritBox.com slash NPR. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. Political leaders in both parties averted disaster last week when Congress approved and President Biden signed into law a bill to lift the debt ceiling and prevent a government default. The deal was brokered by the White House and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, who presides over a narrow House majority, including a significant vocal group of hardline conservatives. McCarthy's counterpart in the House is Hakeem Jeffries, who was sworn in to lead House Democrats roughly six months ago. Neither party came away from the debt ceiling deal fully satisfied, but ultimately, when that deal passed the House last week, it was with Democrats playing a larger role than Republicans. I sat down with Jeffries in his office at the Capitol earlier today, and I started by asking him whether he thought the final debt ceiling compromise was a good one and whether Democrats had given away too much. Well, President Biden did a very good job under difficult circumstances. It was incredibly important that we avoid this dangerous default, even though there were many extreme mega Republicans who were determined to bring that about. And I'm thankful for President Biden's leadership and the role that House Democrats played in making sure that we avoided a default, but also arrived at a resolution that protected our priorities and our values in so many different areas. I know that this was a deal that was largely brokered by President Biden, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Did you at any point in your conversations with Speaker McCarthy about this promise to deliver a certain number of Democratic votes, a range of Democratic votes? Was that a conversation between the two of you? No, we made clear publicly as well as privately that it was our expectation that House Republicans would deliver at least 150 votes in connection with an agreement that they themselves negotiated with the Biden administration. Once an agreement was finalized, uh, we made sure that there was an active, open, and ongoing conversation so that the members of the House Democratic Caucus could get all of the information that they needed to make the best possible decision in advance of the floor vote to avoid a default. So no specific agreement on the number of Democrats that would go on board here? No. I want to ask you about the dynamics in your own caucus here. But Other than the fact that we made clear that 
since it was our expectation that House Republicans would produce at least 150 votes, uh, that we would ensure that the country did not default. I want to ask you a little bit about the dynamics within your own caucus. There are a number of progressive Democrats who have made the point that they were dissatisfied with some parts of this deal, including work requirements, some environmental measures, among other things. What do you say to members of your party who feel like they just watched Republicans use the nation's debt limit as a political wedge and that Democrats possibly, and the president even, should have come to the table earlier to ensure that Republicans didn't exact all of the things that they did in this deal in terms of concessions they were able to get here? Well, President Biden did a very good job on the difficult circumstances, given the fact that there was a willingness by some extreme right-wing folks on the other side of the aisle to actually default on our debt, crash the economy, and trigger a job-killing recession in order uh, to extract maximum pain on the economy, which they thought they could leverage to maximize political benefit for themselves in 2024. Uh, in that context, President Biden you know, was able to protect those important priorities that we cared about and mitigate the damage that could otherwise have been done, including as it relates you know, to the SNAP program. It's extraordinary when you think about the fact that extreme mega Republicans were determined to reduce the number of people who had access to nutritional benefit programs in the United States. But because the Biden administration was able to expand exemptions, the Independent Congressional Budget Office concluded that as a result of the changes made in the debt ceiling resolution to the SNAP program, approximately a million more Americans every year will have access to supplemental nutritional assistance program food benefits. That's an extraordinary thing. When you look at the margins on the other side, there's 71 Republicans who defected and did not support Speaker McCarthy, despite his hands-on role in that negotiation. What does that tell you as someone who works with Speaker McCarthy on a day-to-day -day basis about his ability to govern a caucus with many factions? Either one of two things will happen. Either the House will be unable to function at all because the extreme MAGA Republican wing of the House Republican Conference is determined uh, to bring about a my way or the highway situation. Alternatively, House Republicans can decide to partner with President Biden, House Democrats, and the Senate to try to find common ground bipartisan consensus in areas where we are investing in the health, safety, and economic well-being of the American people, as opposed to trying to undermine it at every turn. Are you concerned about that my way or the highway mentality as you describe it? I'm thinking of the fact that we saw a small group of right-leaning Republicans who blocked a procedural move on a rule even in the House floor yesterday. Does that concern you when we think about things like a potential government shutdown in October? From the beginning, the Republicans were determined to either bring about the draconian cuts that were part of the Default on America Act, jam their polluters over people legislation into any ultimate resolution, and gut things like Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, veterans benefits. They failed on all those fronts. If extreme mega Republicans think that they can extract concessions that are inconsistent with what the American people want, they are badly mistaken.
I want to ask you a little bit about your tenure in this job. You became leader of the Democrats in the House roughly six months ago. Your predecessor, Nancy Pelosi, was known for her political acumen, her ability to count votes well. I am curious, how would you characterize your style in this role compared to her style in this role? And is there any specific pieces of advice that she gave you that inform the way you approach it? Well, Speaker Pelosi is an iconic, legendary leader, and it's been an honor and a blessing to have spent time serving in leadership with her in the previous few Congresses and to continue to get the benefit of her advice, guidance, and insight moving forward. Stylistically, though, I want to ask that again. How would you characterize your style in this role versus her style? I mean, it is an interesting dynamic having your predecessor still as a member of the House while you are now in this new job. Well, I'll leave it to others to characterize my style other than to say it's very difficult to follow Michael Jordan, and I'm following Michael Jordan. One of the things that my colleagues has heard from Speaker McCarthy when it comes to you is he's told them and others that he has a better working relationship with you than he did with Speaker Pelosi. Do you think that's true? Well, I can't comment on what relationship may have existed between Kevin McCarthy and prior leadership, but I can say that we have a very good working relationship. From the very beginning, we decided that we were going to communicate with each other honestly, authentically, and consistently, uh, and we've been able to do that. Doesn't mean that we will always agree. We disagree often, uh, but we can agree to disagree without being disagreeable, and we've both tried to take that approach. Leader Hakeem Jeffries, thank you. Appreciate you. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Hazy smoke from Canadian wildfires continues to hover over the East Coast and Midwest, creating unhealthy air quality for millions of Americans. It's also caused some flight delays in New York and Philadelphia areas due to poor visibility. Canadian officials are asking other countries for help in fighting more than 400 fires currently burning in the country. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre says President Biden has been briefed on those fires that started in Quebec last week. Our team here at the White House is in touch with the government of Canada. We have already deployed over 600 U.S. firefighters and personnel, as well as equipment like water bombers to help Canada battle the fires. Meanwhile, New York City remains under an orange haze as hazardous pollution levels extend as far as North Carolina and Indiana. In Florida, the trial of a school resource officer charged with failing to confront a gunman that killed 17 people at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School got underway today. Scott Peterson faces multiple felony counts and other charges, as Gerard Albert of member station WLRN reports. In opening statements, Peterson's lawyer, Mark Eglarsh, argued the shooter is the one to blame for the killings. When you have very strong feelings in this case, understand who's responsible for that. Not my client. But Assistant State Attorney Stephen Klinger contended Peterson neglected his duty and training by waiting outside the building. He is trained how to handle a situation where he is the only person there, the only law enforcement person there, to handle an active shooter. 
Jurors will need to decide whether Peterson, as the school resource officer, had a legal obligation to protect students and staff in the building. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. There's an air quality alert in effect until midnight because of the smoke from the Canadian wildfires. Doctors say the young, the elderly, and people with heart and lung problems are most at risk. Here's WBUR's Amy Sokolow. Dr. Peter Miskovis is a pulmonologist at Mass General Hospital. He advises those at risk to be aware of symptoms like wheezing, shortness of breath, or chest tightness. Make sure that you're taking the medications that you're prescribed as maintenance or preventive medications. So make sure you're taking the daily inhalers that you've been prescribed. And then make sure you try to minimize your exposure as much as possible. Muscovis says anyone could experience allergy-like symptoms, including sneezing and coughing. He recommends limiting time outside and staying in well-ventilated rooms whenever possible. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amy Sokolow. A Boston police report reveals details about the crash of a police vehicle that was carrying Mayor Michelle Wu in Roslindale yesterday. WBUR's Walter Wuthman reports. The accident report says a Boston police officer was driving the mayor's official electric Ford Mustang with its police lights and sirens activated. The officer said she slowly pulled into oncoming traffic at a red light and collided with a black Honda, which had the green light. Wu reported minor pain in her right side, but declined medical attention at the scene. The woman operating the Honda also declined medical attention, but she and a young child were later transported by Boston EMS for observation. The officer was transported as well and discharged. It's unclear why the officer activated the car's lights and siren. Boston police say they're investigating to see if any department rules were broken. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. There is a festive ceremony on Beacon Hill today as the pride flag was raised in front of the statehouse. WBUR's Steve Brown tells us Governor Maura Healey used the event to draw a contrast with other states trying to curtail LGBTQ rights. Surrounded by legislators, drag queens, and LGBTQ advocates, Healy said people all around the country who need a safe haven are looking to Massachusetts, adding the state is open for business and open to all. At a time where there are some, including two states that have banned the performance of drag, here in Massachusetts, we not only welcome them, but we celebrate them. In a subtle dig to Republican Florida governor and presidential candidate Ron DeSantis' spat with Disney over LGBTQ rights, Healy said she would welcome Disney to Massachusetts. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Ranked by U.S. News & World Report as best in New England for primary care education. Learn more at umassmed.edu. It's a 7-10 start time for the Red Sox out in Cleveland tonight, the middle game of a three-game set. Cutter Crawford takes the mound for Boston, Tanner Beebe for the Guardians. And in the forecast, showers off and on for the early part of the evening. Should be cloudy overnight tonight, down around 53 degrees. Then tomorrow, gray again, chance of showers again. Temperatures in the mid-60s, and then pretty much the same thing for Friday. Mostly cloudy, with a chance of some thunderstorms, temperatures in the 60s. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 536. WBUR supporters include Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at certapro.com. That's Serta with a C. 
You know that phrase, strength in numbers? That's how WBUR really works. I'm Deepal Fernandez. WBUR's journalism thrives through collective contributions of tens of thousands of listeners each year. Join us during this brief but important fundraiser. Help us meet our June fundraising goal by making a monthly contribution now. Here's how you can contribute. You can contribute right now, as we hope you will, by calling one 800 909 9287 or going to WBUR.org. By the way, that 909 is 90.9 and the 9287 is WBUR. We hope you will call right now because we just have 24 minutes left on, uh, with this triple match on the table. I'm Lisa Mullins with Magnus Chakrabarty. And what that triple match does is for, if you Call us now with a month- monthly contribution from W for WBUR, I should say. Generous listeners from our Murrow Society will match that two to one. And so that's how it becomes this incredible triple offer from WBUR. So if you can give $10 a month, then the Murrow Society will kick in another 20 a month. And that means it's a total of $30 for WBUR. If you could give $100 or $200, you can see how quickly uh, the amount that is goes to funding this station uh, rises because of that two-to-one match. But what is not rising is the time left to take advantage of it. That's shrinking rapidly. We've just got 20 minutes left before the match expires. So call us now at 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. Hey there, it's Tamara Keith from NPR. I thrive on deadlines. I don't think I'd get anything done without them. Just ask my editor. If you're the same way, I'm here to help you out with a little nudge to get something important done. I'm going to give you a deadline for donating to this station. You can knock it out in five minutes, I swear. Start a timer. Your deadline is now. Here's how to give. By calling 1-800-909-9287 or going to WBUR.org, you can make that deadline by calling right now before we go back to the news. And we just have 21 minutes left in this uh, triple match on the table right now. because So once again, the way it works is some members of the Murrow Society who are so generous said, we are going to triple whatever a listener puts out on the table for a monthly subscription. So if you can make a monthly sub- subscription of $10 a month, then that becomes $30 a month for us. If you can do $50 a month, uh, then that becomes 150 for us. We only have this offer on the table until 6 o'clock tonight. This fun drive is ending tomorrow. So we hope that you will take advantage of this right now because it means so much to us. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Lisa, have you ever ordered something online and then you go to your cart and there's like a timer that pops up and says you have to like... It's pay very for anxiety it in 15 minutes yes. or less, otherwise your cart will empty out or the offer will go away. In a sense, we've got that same pop-up timer right now on this incredible two-to-one match, and the timer is just hit 20, and it's counting down in terms of the number of minutes that we have for you to take advantage of this two-for-one match. So if you're able to give a monthly contribution of any amount, Generous listeners from our Murrow Society will essentially add twice as much to your contribution every single month. It's an incredible opportunity to help keep WBUR strong, vibrant, and independent every month and every year for the foreseeable future. But now we're at like 
19 minutes and 30 seconds in that countdown timer. So 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call. I was going to say breathe through it, but don't breathe through it. (laughs) Just go to the phone or call. Go online at WBUR.org. And when you're trying to uh, think about how much you want to give to WBUR, I can tell you a couple things. If you think about the interviews that you've been hearing, that interview with Hakeem Jeffries, you're going to be hearing about Mike Pence announcing his presidential run. We'll be hearing a little bit uh, later on uh, uh, from a North Korean official, former North Korean official who has defected. He is giving his first interview, and you will hear it on WBUR. And that's what you get on WBUR, along with the stories about the environment. And we've certainly had a lot of those today as well, stories about the arts. So think about what each of those uh, topics means to you right now. Put a dollar value on it. And I understand that the average monthly contribution is coming in, I think, at $200 a month. We are so grateful for people who can do that. And just know that if you can pledge $200 a month right now, that becomes $600 for us. So please make a contribution right now, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Or if, let's say, $200 over the course of a year is more oh, the course of a year. Your, your, your style, that's an, an also a, a phenomenal thinking, amount. Well, I someone like out it. there could so give $200 right. a yeah. month. And if that's you, call 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. And listen, this is the core reason why this is so important. And that is there's a lot of news out there right now about the CEO of CNN, uh, Chris Licht, being fired. Well, one of the reasons why is because he couldn't pull up CNN's rankings uh, and ratings, and um, CNN needs those high ratings in order to woo advertisers to their network. That is the opposite of what we do here at WBUR. We are truly independent in every sense of the word. We are only beholden to you because you are the folks who keep us on the air. The opposite from ratings-driven, advertising-driven journalism. We are public service-driven journalism, but we need the public to help keep that going. That's you. So call us now to take advantage of the two-to-one match with your month with your monthly contribution. You got to do it in the next 15 minutes. 1-800-909. 9287. Because the fact of the matter is, everything that you get from WBUR is a result of what you put into WBUR. You make up the majority of our operating budget. As Magna said, we are not beholden to commercial interests because we don't have commercials, we don't want commercials, and we are editorially independent. We think that's the way you want it. But in order to keep us strong, we need some source of income. So if you right now can make a monthly pledge to WBUR, you won't get a bill, just name the amount. And better is that right now it will be tripled dollar for dollar thanks to some members of the Murrow Society. So they're so generous. Please don't take that for granted. Don't leave any money on the table. We certainly don't want that to happen. Six o'clock is the deadline. Make the phone call now because the clock is counting down. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Thank you. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline how businesses can attract, interview, and hire candidates. More at Indeed.com NPR. From The Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises. Committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org solutions. And from the listeners who support this NPR station.
It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. This season has brought the strongest storm to hit one U.S. territory in 20 years. We'll check on the recovery effort in a few minutes. First, though, let's check on the 2024 race. Today, former Vice President Mike Pence jumped into the Republican presidential field in Iowa. Today, before God and my family, I'm announcing that I'm running for president of the United States of America. Pence talked about returning the Republican Party to standard conservative goals. He went on to explicitly criticize former President Trump and the way he has changed the party. NPR political correspondent Kelsey Snell is in Iowa. Hi, Kelsey. Hi there. What is Pence promising voters he would deliver if elected president? He outlined a version of the Republican Party that, well, is just traditional. He talked about Reagan and standing up for religious freedom. He also talked about ending abortion in every state. But Pence also pivoted. He said he's always been a conservative and nothing has changed, but the same cannot be said about Trump. When Donald Trump ran for president in 2016, he promised to govern as a conservative. And together we did just that. Today... He makes no such promise. What we're kind of hearing there is Pence betting that GOP voters want that old-style, traditional Republican candidate. You're also hearing him kind of campaigning on the time he spent alongside the president, former president, while also Mm -hmm. bashing Trump. And Republicans generally say they like the policies that passed when Trump was president. So how is Pence threading that needle? Yeah, he said he is proud of everything they accomplished for the American people. He named battling ISIS and cutting taxes. He also took credit for appointing the Supreme Court justices who ended Roe versus Wade. Now, those policies are part of why Trump is dominating in the polls right now, even with lots of competition in the field. And Pence is essentially betting that people want all of those Trump policies with a little bit less controversy. But since Trump is the front runner, Pence has to take him on. And it mm-hmm. sounds like he's now going after him. What's his new message? Yeah, this was the most direct kind of lengthy critique of Trump that we have heard from Pence so far, particularly when it comes to January 6th. Pence explicitly said he did not have the right to overturn the election that day. He said Trump was wrong and pitted Pence against the oath of office. He essentially warned that all of that would happen again. On that day, President Trump also demanded that I choose between him and the Constitution. Now voters will be faced with the same choice. He keeps calling himself a constitutional conservative. We heard him talk about the Constitution over and over again in this speech, and that is part of the image he is trying to convey to voters, that he would protect the Constitution in a way that Trump would not. And how did voters respond? You know, I think a good example was when Pence acknowledged that people were disappointed with the outcome in 2020. He said he was disappointed, too, but that he had no right to overturn the election outcome. And he said Trump had no right to ask. I believe that anyone who puts themselves over the Constitution should never be president of the United States. And anyone who asks someone else to put them over the Constitution should never be president of the United States again. So you can hear it there. That reaction was not quite so strong as some of the stuff we were hearing before. The applause was not so loud for the idea that the person that Pence was describing, who is Trump, should never be president again. I will say that voters I talked to after were surprised by this new tone from Pence. One woman told me that she'd seen him just last week, and and he seemed more gentle then, but she really liked this more aggressive stance. All right, we will stay tuned for more coverage on all the stances that the many candidates are taking in this race. NPR political correspondent Kelsey Snell in Des Moines, Iowa. Thanks. Thanks for having me.
It's been two weeks since a powerful typhoon hit Guam in the western Pacific. Thousands of residents still do not have water or electricity on the U.S. territory. Typhoon Mawar is the strongest storm to hit the island in two decades, and the recovery effort is well underway. Reporter Ashley Westerman checked in. At Guam Community College, a line wraps around Building E, where the Federal Emergency Management Agency has set up its first recovery assistance center. Persa June St. Maria is here, hoping to get help from FEMA. He and his family rode out the storm in a laundry storage room. Our apartment, the roof was blown off during the typhoon. All clothes, all appliances are totally ruined and uh, we're homeless. St. Maria is one of the some 10,000 Guamanians who have registered with FEMA. He still doesn't have water and electricity. A little further down the line, Marlene Raymond says her house was also inundated with water. Half of the roof is gone, even the sliding door falling inside. <laughs> so everything is all wet. Raymond lived through the last big storm to hit Guam, Typhoon Paksanghua, in 2002, but... It's not like this one. It's really strong. <laughs> it's breaking everything. Luckily, no one died in this typhoon, which had a maximum sustained winds of 140 miles per hour. But the island is a wreck. The Category 4 storm stripped leaves off trees, debris is still washing up on the beaches, and the government says the commercial sector suffered $112 million in damage. Guam Power Authority says it's working to restore power across the 212-square-mile island. Crystal Paco St. Augustine, spokeswoman for the governor of Guam, says most of the 90 water wells are back up and running. A lot of them are connected to the power. They need power restored. They're all connected. Paco St. Augustine says it took three months to fully recover from Typhoon Paksanghua. But this time, the government expects to be up to 95% recovered in one month. So why the confidence that recovery can happen so quickly? For one, Paco St. Augustine says many changes have been made. For example, structures such as buildings and telephone poles are now required to be made out of concrete. There weren't as many down power lines power poles because now they're concrete. Also, what's really helping to support um, a speedy recovery and resilience effort is, is that we have our federal family here on island. They were here pre-storm landfall. Days before the storm, Guam's governor asked President Biden for a pre-landfall emergency declaration, which got aid moving well ahead of time. And indeed, the hum of recovery could be heard across the island. At the Army Corps of Engineers staging area, a huge generator bound for a firehouse is strapped down on a flatbed truck. We got generators both from Guam, Hawaii, Tracy, California. Major Andrew James says despite Guam being 7,000 miles from the U.S. mainland, they are about where they should be to meet recovery demand. It could always be faster, but there's only, you know, so many uh, large aircraft, and so we understand, you know, it's, it's coming in as fast as it can. At Micronesian Divers Association on Route 1, Derwin Romar says his home up north, the hardest hit part of Guam, still doesn't have electricity and very low water pressure. But Romar isn't upset about it. From the islands, we're not just humble, but um, negative is not going to solve anything. 
other Guamanians that NPR spoke with for this story had a similar sentiment. Romar says, when you live on an island, you know you're going to have to wait for things. A patience that allows you to weather any storm. For NPR News, I'm Ashley Westerman in Hagatna, Guam. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU School of Social Work, top-ranked part-time MSW programs in Bedford, Fall River, Worcester, and Cape Cod. bu.edu slash SSW. I'm Daryl C. Murphy. From news headlines to deeper dives into issues of real consequence, from Morning Edition to All Things Considered, from stories online at WBUR.org, to conversations on stage at City Space, everything you get from WBUR depends on a solid foundation of listener support. Help us get to our June fundraiser goal to keep our journalism strong. Here's how to help. Here's how to help just in the next six minutes because our triple match is over at the top of the hour at six o'clock. And we hope you won't leave any money on the table. You'll take advantage of this right now before we go back to the news on All Things Considered. Here's the number, 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. I'm Lisa Mullins with On Point's Magna Chakrabarty. And that's right, Lisa. There's just six minutes left now. Just six minutes left to take advantage of this incredible two-for-one Match. So if you're able to call in now or go to WBUR.org and decide to contribute a monthly amount in whatever uh, value works for you, $5, $10, $20, that amount will then be matched two to one. But you have to do it in the next five and a half minutes because the offer for the match ends right at six o'clock. So take advantage of it. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. This is Ira Glass of This American Life from Public Radio International. One of the things that makes public radio different is the way that it's funded. We have the most idealistic system, the fairest system, the best system in the world. That is, those of us who listen all the time, those of us who like the kinds of stories and shows and analysis and music and authors that are on this radio station every day, those of us who like that kind of thing, we all pitch in together, and that's how it stays on the air. Public radio equals public support. If you can help out, give a call. Please do give a call right now or go online at WBUR.org. The phone number, if you want to call, 1-800-909-9287. Four minutes left for this triple match on the table. If you can give $15 a month, it becomes $45 a month for us for an entire year. If you can afford to give, say, $25 a month, then obviously it becomes $75 a month. This is uh, one, just one of the many ways we're hoping to entice you to give, especially right now, as we wind down the fun drive because it is over just about this time tomorrow and we don't want to end it without you because we really can't take a break from um, the knowledge that we need to be strong for the year to come and all the stories in the coming year. We don't know what's going to happen. We do know that we are on solid footing when you help fund us. 1-800-909-9287, WBUR.org. You know, every time I hear that uh, fundraising call from Ira Glass, I think, yes, he's used the exact right word, 
idealism, right? This is the most idealistic system to fund journalism anywhere out there because we have this ideal that you, the listener who values this journalism, will contribute directly to help make that journalism. And in a world and a time where it's easy to just become very cynical about everything, isn't it marvelous that there's something you can do still right now, very simple, very quickly, very easily, that helps reach and preserve an ideal? 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call and do it before six o'clock. So do it in the next three minutes because we do have that two for one match on the table. Your monthly contribution will be matched two for one if you call now. 1-800-909-9287. And one of the reasons that it works, public radio does, is because it's a very transparent system. We tell you what we need. You talk about the value. You put a dollar value on what you listen to on WBUR, what you get at City Space, uh, the common circle round, endless thread, our newsletters as well. And you help us pay for it. Um, and that's that's a kind of a great transaction that surprises a lot of people, but it works, and it works because we know you value the quality journalism that you get here. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Just two more minutes left to go in that triple match. Yeah, and the reason why we strongly encourage people to consider giving us monthly contributions is you know better than, than anyone, the news simply does not stop. We are living in a constant news and information environment and the need for high quality analysis and journalism around that constant environment is higher than ever. So we cannot stop. That means a consistent source of funding is exactly what's going to help keep you uh, getting this consistent source of journalism from WBUR. Contribute now with a monthly contribution. It will be matched two to one by the generous listeners from our Murrow Society, but you have to call within the next minute and a half. 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call. I'm going to say it slowly because they always say I say it too fast. 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. We're here to answer the questions that you have about the news. For instance, uh, the wildfires that are causing so much smoke and dangerous air in our region. What's behind them? What sparked them in the first place? And how long can we expect to have the residual effects of the wildfires from Canada coming our way? Um, Just one of the many stories that we're presenting today that answers questions you might have. And then there are also stories that might come as a complete surprise to you and to us as well. And so we hope that you appreciate what you get when you listen to All Things Considered and we listen to WBUR because everything that we bring you, we think is the best quality, highly accountable. This is exactly what we're asking you to pay for right now. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Our triple match is on the table. It is over in less than a minute. You can still count yourself in, so call 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Make a monthly contribution to WBUR, and we'll be happy you did, and you will too. Thank you so much. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From the Cy Sims Foundation, since 1985, supporting advances in science, education, and the arts towards a fairer, more just, and civil society. 
More information is available at SciSimsFoundation.org. From DataIQ, a platform for everyday AI, to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U.com. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. I'm Chief Content Officer Victor Hernandez. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. As wildfires continue to burn in Canada, smoke is pouring across the border into the U.S., creating unhealthy air conditions and blanketing East Coast cities and parts of the Midwest with a thick, acrid haze. The smoke from fires also prompting evacuations in Canada and calls for help. The U.S. is sending 650 firefighters to help extinguish the massive wildfires, which, according to State Department Deputy Spokesman Vedant Patel, are posing an unprecedented threat. The U.S. is supporting Canada uh, as it faces extreme wildfires, which, uh, based on our assessments, is on track to be one of the largest natural, uh, natural disasters in Canadian history. The smoke has triggered unhealthy air alerts in major cities, including New York. It's also causing flight delays at some major U.S. airports. Former Trump White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows has testified before a grand jury weighing the handling of classified documents once Trump left office and alleged obstruction of justice as the government probes the matter. That's according to a source with direct knowledge, though the substance of Meadows' testimony today was unclear. The apparent ramped-up pacing of witness testimony could signal special counsel Jack Smith's probe is nearing a conclusion. A man accused in the plot to kidnap Michigan Governor's has pleaded guilty to providing material support for an act of terrorism. Michael Livingston from Interlochen Public Radio has more. 40-year-old Sean Fix was one of five men accused of trying to kidnap Governor Gretchen Whitmer in 2020. Fix told state judge Charles Hamlin that he helped locate the governor's vacation home in northern Michigan's Antrim County. Mr. Fix, it's up to you then, sir. Uh, have to count one terrorist acts providing material support, a 20-year felony here in the state of Michigan. How do you wish to plead? Guilty. Fix is the second person to plead guilty in the case. 54-year-old Brian Higgins of Wisconsin took a guilty plea in March. As part of his plea agreement, Fix may need to testify in the trial of the three remaining co-defendants in August. Prosecutors also agreed to drop a weapons charge. For NPR News, I'm Michael Livingston in Bel Air, Michigan. U.S. consumers added billions of dollars to their credit card balances in April. NPR's Scott Horsley reports. Spending grew faster than people's paychecks in April, and many people relied on borrowed money to make up the difference. The Federal Reserve says credit card balances and other forms of revolving debt grew by $13.5 billion that month. Overall, revolving credit now totals nearly $1.25 trillion. The cost of carrying a credit card balance is going up. According to the financial website WalletHub, the average interest rate on credit card debt is now just over 20%. The Federal Reserve will decide next week whether to raise borrowing costs again for what would be the 11th time in 15 months. Meanwhile, the share of income people managed to save has shrunk on average to just 4.1%. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. A mixed close on Wall Street. The Dow was up 91 points today. The Nasdaq fell 171 points. The S&P was down 16 points. 
This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good evening. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts environmental officials are warning people with asthma and certain other health conditions to avoid prolonged outdoor activity this evening. An air quality alert remains in effect until midnight tonight due to drifting plumes of smoke from the Canadian wildfires. Worcester Polytechnic Institute Assistant Professor Shi Chao Lu warns of some smoke that can seep indoors, especially in older homes. If this house are dropped through you know, the cold wind, through the small cracks, and people can feel that, and the small particles can go through the cracks as well. Lou recommends that people in the sensitive groups close their windows and doors. He also says if the homes have central air conditioning, people can run it on a recirculation mode to filter the air. A drug partially developed by Cambridge-based Biogen to treat Alzheimer's disease is getting closer to full federal approval. Today, the FDA said late-stage trials of Lakembi suggest it provides benefits to patients without any new risks. The company's research shows the drug reduced the rate of cognitive decline in Alzheimer's patients by almost 30 percent. An outside panel is expected to discuss the drug's approval application on Friday. State of Massachusetts is not allowing logging in state forests for at least another six months. New logging contracts have not been signed since Governor Maura Healy took office. The Healy administration announced today it wants to develop guidelines that acknowledge the role of forests in fighting climate change. Chris Egan is with the industry group Massachusetts Forest Alliance. He says the moratorium is making it difficult for loggers and sawmills to keep working. That could be 30 percent of their business. So to lose 30 percent of your business for a year, that can cause some economic challenges. Healy administration says science supports some logging on state land along with forest conservation efforts. The JFK Library and Museum will be staying open later sometimes this summer on June 21st and three other dates in July and August. The museum will be open until 8 at night. It usually closes at 5. It's part of a late nights at the library series announced today. During the special hours, admission will be free and special programming will be offered. Red Sox hope to add a second win to their series with the Cleveland Guardians tonight. It's game two of three in Cleveland. Cutter Crawford gets the start for Boston against Tanner Beebe for the Guardians. And in the forecast, breezy, coolish through the evening hours, showers off and on. Tonight, clouds hang in there down around the mid-50s. Tomorrow, another gray day. Random rain showers reaching the mid-60s again. And then more clouds ahead for Friday. 62 degrees now in Boston at 607. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. I'm Mary Louise Kelly, and I'm about to introduce you to a man who had never set foot on American soil before yesterday, never given an interview either. When Kim Hyunwoo stepped into our studios here in Washington to speak with me through an interpreter for more than an hour, he was doing something that, in his past life, would have gotten him killed. For 17 years in North Korea, I worked for North Korean intelligence agency. You were a spy. 
my role was more about protecting the regime's security internally. Mr. Kim worked for North Korea's Ministry of State Security. Main task was not to send out agents abroad, but rather to track down, identify, and catch what the regime views as hostile agents or hostile activities within the state. As you may have gathered from the fact that he's speaking now, Kim Hyunwoo defected in 2014. Today he lives in Seoul, South Korea. He got his kids out, his immediate family. But Kim's decision put his wider family, still in North Korea, in danger. Sadly, I do not know what happened to my relatives. And that's why when I'm in South Korea every day, morning, daytime, and evening, I pray earnestly that God will keep them safe in North Korea, all my cousins and relatives. Mr. Kim works now for the Institute for National Security Strategy. That's a state-funded think tank in Seoul. He is still tracking North Korea closely. So I'm curious. I'm curious about so many things about life in North Korea. What do we know of the pandemic, of COVID, of how badly North Korea has been hit. I predict that North Korea suffered from pandemic even more severe than other countries, fundamentally because North Korea's healthcare infrastructure is severely deficient. So there would have been inadequate proper responses in mitigating and containing the spread and the illness from the pandemic. Do we know for sure that there was spread? Because Pyongyang was saying, there are no cases, no problem, because we closed the borders. I question the credibility of North Korea's official state message that due to locking down the country, there was no spread of pandemic. It's because 13 years ago, in 2010, there was actually another case of spread of epidemic. In 2010 case and today's case, what we know is that because North Korean regime lacks proper resources to deal with pandemic, only realistic option, a measure they could take is literally lock down the entire country. North Korea's lockdown measures, however, from the past case, from 2010, we can extrapolate that it likely was insufficient in actually preventing the spread of epidemic. And yet the regime, obviously, to be transparent in full data of the impact of pandemic could have caused political and social instability within the country. That is why I believe with confidence that North Korea regime has been intentional in, in minimizing broadcast information and coverage about the actual state of damage from the recent pandemic. Can you tell how tightly sealed the borders are now? First two years of COVID pandemic, the borders were heavily locked down and controlled. Starting in 2022, what we are seeing is that while human travels, so human interactions are still strictly monitored and curtailed, there has been 
signs of revival of cargoes passing between China and North Korea border. So in that sense, at least in terms of shipments of goods, yes, it seems for the past year there's been relaxation of the border control. What kind of goods are coming in? To give an example, so last summer, June and July specifically, construction materials have been shipped from China into North Korea. We speculate that North Korean higher-ups or elites, they also need luxury goods, and we predict that these goods have also found the ways to be imported from overseas. Let me ask you about succession. We see photos of a girl, Kim Jong-un's daughter. Is she the heir apparent? Based on what we know about the protocols and the traditions behind North Korea's leadership succession, as of now, there is no concrete evidence for us to argue Kim Joo-ae, the daughter, is going to be the next in line for North Korea's regime leadership succession, as of now. But she keeps coming in pictures. We keep he keeps appearing with her. Seems deliberate. Kim Jong Un, the current leader, does consider Kim Joo-ae as his heir, the next in line to the succession of power. If that is truly his intention, it does come to risk for the current government to make the decision. The danger is if Kim Jong-un, the current leader, makes a public decision recognizing Kim Joo-ae, his daughter, as a leader too soon, it creates speculations on current leader is only in his mid-30s, I believe, late 30s. So why is he so impatient to designate a successor? It could lead to questions on health, for instance, then maybe the leader is not healthy and therefore the leader needs to pick his successor too quickly. And that says speculations that probably Kim Jong-un, the current leader, does not want to get entrapped. What I have just explained is arguably a rational prediction of what leadership succession should look like in North Korea. 다만, However, even though logically I analyze it's unlikely for Kim Joo-ae to be recognized as a leader, not yet at least, I'm also aware that seemingly unlogical, unrational decisions have occurred in North Korean politics. So the possibility of Kim Joo-ae, as you've mentioned, as becoming recognized as a successor is a distinct possibility that I'm not going to completely dismiss out of hand. So who knows? <laughs> who knows is that? Kim if Kim Jong-un does make it official public decisions to recognize his daughter as a successor, it could be a clue or sign that there might be certain new changes to his own physical or political health of a current leader, and therefore leadership succession has become urgent for the regime. So that could be an indicator. However, even among North Korean analysts, no one can make concrete predictions on this way or that way. So even among ourselves, we weigh the possibilities and look for more signs. K. 
Kim Hyun-woo. Until 2014, he held a senior post in North Korea's Ministry of State Security. This is his first interview. Tomorrow, part two, his view on his country's relations with the U.S. and whether he will ever be able to go home. It's pretty common to find seashells or coral on the beach. Outside Santa Cruz, California, a tourist recently spotted something way more unusual. She snapped photos and posted them on social media. And I saw the pictures and I practically hit the floor. Wayne Thompson is with the Santa Cruz Museum of Natural History. He says the object could easily be mistaken for a piece of burnt wood. Because it was dark black on the top and kind of an amber brown on the bottom, but it doesn't look quite like a piece of firewood. Not quite, because as Thompson could tell from the photos, it was actually a tooth. A huge mastodon molar, almost five inches wide, with long roots extending below the chomping part. It is old. The last of these Ice Age mammoth relatives died out 10,000 years ago. Thompson rushed to the beach, but when he got there, the tooth was gone. I determined because of the the tide structure there that it couldn't have been taken out to sea, it couldn't have been buried. So the conclusion was that somebody had taken it. He describes what came next as a news and social media blitz to locate the tooth, and luckily word got to the right person. Somebody called the museum and said, hey, you know, I I think I have something that looks a lot like that thing I saw in the news. (laughs) Can I come in and show it to you? And sure enough, it was the tooth. A preliminary dental exam offered some clues about the mastodon that once chewed with this tooth. The top of the molar, the enamel part, and the dentine is highly eroded, indicating that uh, this particular individual was an adult, um, probably between 30 and 40 years old. Thompson says radiocarbon dating could narrow down when this mastodon lived, and examining wear and tear on the tooth's surface might reveal what it liked to eat. By the way, this is not the first time mastodons have washed up in the area. In the early 1980s, Thompson spent two years piecing together a skull that a teenager found in a nearby creek. He says dozens of locals are now calling in with more leads. This one woman contacted me and said, you know, I have some pictures of this thing I found on the beach. It looks like it might be a bone, and it's really, really, really big. And sure enough, it's the leg bone of a mammoth or a mastodon. So we'll be studying that specimen and getting it to the museum soon. The museum was already planning an exhibit on local mammoths and mastodons. With any luck, it's about to get bigger. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for being with us this evening. Most American kids quit playing sports at age 11, so they miss out on the fun of team building. We'll hear how one high school is trying to keep kids in the game. Coming up on All Things Considered. A mixed day on Wall Street today. The Dow came out on the plus side. It picked up about a quarter of a percent. S&P and NASDAQ both lost ground. S&P fell four-tenths of a percent. The NASDAQ was down more than one and a quarter percent. Details on Marketplace at 6.30. It's now 6.19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders, movers, and changemakers to close opportunity gaps, advance equity, and power a better Boston. Learn more at tbf.org.
Join WBUR tomorrow night at the Somerville Theater for the Moth Main Stage, featuring live music and five true stories told live with no notes. Tickets are at WBUR.org slash events. In sports, Red Sox hope to add a second win to their series with the Cleveland Guardians tonight. It's game two of three in Cleveland. Cutter Crawford will get the start for Boston against Tanner Beebe, 7-10 start time. And in the forecast, smoky skies lasting until about midnight tonight. Clouds hanging around, down around 53 degrees tonight. Then for tomorrow, pretty much like today. Cloudy skies in the mid-60s, some more spring showers likely. And then Friday, more showers, maybe some thunderstorms holding to the mid-60s. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. If you live in the Northeast U.S., then today you probably woke up to hazy skies. That's because of wildfires burning in eastern Canada, including around 150 fires in Quebec alone. Reporter Emma Jacobs joins me from Montreal. Hey there. Hi. Hi. So tell me how bad are the fires right now in Canada? What's their impact there? It's bad. Like the U.S., Canadians have been waking up to orange, hazy skies in big cities like Ottawa and Toronto. Here in Montreal, you've been able to smell the fires for several days, though actually images from New York look worse right now. Uh, Many people have had to be evacuated from their homes in Quebec alone, around 15,000. Some of those evacuees live in pretty remote areas. Police have been out on the roads along the evacuation routes with gas cans in case evacuees ran out on the way. The province doesn't have the resources to fight all the fires burning right now. They can only fight about around 40 at a time. And we have about 150, as you said. So responders have focused their resources around protecting communities and infrastructure. And is more help on the way? As French President Emmanuel Macron tweeted this week, reinforcements are coming. Right now, there are about 670 personnel from Quebec and the Canadian military on the ground. The head of the provincial government, Premier Francois Legault, said today that they're hoping to receive more firefighter reinforcements. We hope to have more than 500 in the next few days coming from New Brunswick, France, United States, Portugal, Spain and Mexico. But fires have been unusually bad all across Canada this spring. So there's a lot of demand even for the same equipment. Quebec had additional water bombers on loan from Newfoundland, but they had to be returned home because that province had its own wildfires to deal with. That sounds really bad. And so early in the fire season, I do want to ask, do we know what the role of climate change may be in these fires? Climate change... Climate change means more hot and dry conditions that can feed more extreme fires. A lot of records broke this spring. Quebec has already had the worst year on record in terms of area burned, and it is early. Projections show that fire risk remains high into the normal wildfire season for most of Canada. That's the rest of June, July, and August. 
Another worrying aspect of this is that climate change not only makes these fires worse, but they contribute to climate change. Yeah. Mike Flanagan is a researcher at Thompson Rivers University in British Columbia. He said the boreal forests in Canada are a huge carbon sink. There's this vast store of legacy carbon that's been building since the last ice age. A fire can go through and can put that carbon back into the atmosphere in one big blast, which will feed the warming. So it's kind of a, a positive feedback a cascading effect that may be coming into play. He told me people can play a role in helping the situation. About 50% of wildfires in Canada are caused by humans. Mm -hmm. He also says firefighting resources should be deployed more strategically to prevent the small percentage of really massive fires that burn most of the area. That is reporter Emma Jacobs in Montreal. Here's a fact that may surprise you. Most American kids quit playing sports by the age of 11, according to a survey from Project Play, part of the Aspen Institute. It means a whole lot of kids are missing out on some of the huge benefits of sports, including spatial awareness, physical activity, and team skills. According to the survey, the main reason kids quit is that their sport wasn't fun anymore. For our Living Better series, NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin reports on how one high school in Maryland is helping bring more students into the game walking into Tuscarora High School on a beautiful spring day. The seniors were jubilant. It was their last day of high school. Tuscarora is a pretty big school in Western Maryland that looks nearly new with a bright main hallway with vaulted ceilings. It has about 1,600 students, 40% white, a quarter Hispanic, a quarter black. A third of students get free or reduced lunch. Also, according to author and athlete Linda Flanagan, this school is doing a lot of things right when it comes to student-athletes, including this. Give them a variety. Offer them a variety of sports. That way, even kids who aren't tall or don't like tackling can still find their spot. We have varsity and JV football. We have field hockey. We have volleyball. We have girls flag football. That is the school's athletic coordinator, Chris O'Connor. There are 17 different sports on offer and three unified teams in which students with and without disabilities play together, including a bocce team. Around 50 percent of the students play one of these school sports, which is higher than the national average of 40 percent participation. So that's really encouraging. That's awesome. That speaks to the number of sports that we offer. Variety isn't just important to help students who aren't particularly athletic find something that they like. It's also important for athletically gifted students, Connor says. Too many students specialize young. I think that's what's wrong with youth sports right now in America. I'm from the mindset of you should do as many different sports as possible. Another way to bring in more students? Lots of levels, says Flanagan. Many students are really structured around varsity teams. If you're at a giant school... If you're trying to make the basketball team, you know, you are competing against four grades for five spots. It's incredibly competitive. So where does that leave the kid who's just like, okay, I want to play, but I'm not, you know, I'm not fantastic. I'm not going to make a career of this. I'm not going to play in college. I just want to play. At Tuscarora, there are low-key, non-competitive sports that students can play during the school day, explains O'Connor. So it's a little more of providing that opportunity for the student-athlete in the school day to just have some fun with the sport and be around an adult who knows something about it. Flanagan notes this also demonstrates another good idea, using school space in a creative way. Most gym and field space is not occupied all the time. Field space in particular is typically for the school sports. 
after school. Why not use that field during a flex period or get students scrimmaging in the gym? Flanagan says there's lots of research showing that getting up and moving a little bit in the middle of the day is great for well-being and academics and more. Just about 10 miles away, outside another school's tennis courts, the Tuscarora boys and girls tennis teams were competing in the regional championship. Nice shot, Matthew! Laura Swanka looked on from the bleachers, cheering on his teammates. He had gotten knocked out earlier in the day. He suspected he would. He was playing against last year's regional champ. So it wasn't really looking good at the start, but my goal was definitely to continue rallies and maintain pace and also just have fun. Fun, the elusive missing ingredient in high school sports. Zwanka says he did have a chance to grow into his sport. He was a beginner when he started as a sophomore, but the Tuscarora tennis team didn't cut anyone. Now as a senior, he says he's improved a lot. I know that when I play out there, I can definitely find out which skills I need to practice more and I can take that time to continue practicing and getting better. He's not planning to compete in college next year, just play tennis recreationally. Not only do I think of it as a great pastime, but I also think that it's something that I can just continue doing for myself. He gets something out of it everyone could use a bit more of. A chance to de-stress, be active, and be with friends. Selena Simmons-Duffin, NPR News, Frederick, Maryland. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Smoke from eastern Canada's wildfires continues to bring plumes of smoke to the region. They should blow out of the area by about midnight tonight, then scattered showers for tonight should fall to about 53 degrees. Tomorrow, keep the umbrella around. Should be cloudy and wet, especially in the afternoon, about 66 for a high. 61 degrees now in Boston at 630. WBUR supporters include Babson. Top-ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu slash MBA. It's the International Year of Millets. No, not mullets, millets. The United Nations is calling attention to an alternative crop for American farmers. I've never seen a crop that stood the heat and stood the drought and still made me money. A crop for an age of climate change, tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBN.